I'm Wilson Lai. I'm Benjamin Yap. I'm Eli Sands. And you're listening to Deep Cut. On Deep Cut, we compare a director's most popular film with a personal favorite chosen by one of us. We also discuss a director's life and career to bring context that helps us view their movies as they may want us to. Before we jump into our discussion about Marilu Diaz Abaya's film Moral, please remember to give us a rating or a review and subscribe to us wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can also keep up with us at Deep Cut Pod on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and Letterboxd even if we don't update as often. (laughs) And if you want to talk about anything with us, you can join our Discord server. You can find links to all of these in the episode description. So, last episode, I introduced to you guys the work of Mary Lou Diaz-Abaya, an acclaimed Filipino filmmaker, and we went over her most popular movie, Jose Rizal. And we talked about her formal strengths as a director, but also we touched upon the struggles of adapting someone's life that is so grand and so big. And we are now switching gears this week to talk about Morale. And Morale is a 1982 movie from Mary Lou Diaz Abaya. It is her fifth feature much earlier on in her career. And this is a film about the lives of four girls who were attending University of the Philippines right before martial law in 1970s. Before we get into talking about the background and context of this movie, I want to get your fresh reactions. So, Eli, what did you think of Morale? I really loved Morale. It's very touching. It has the sort of sweep and scope that automatically clicks with me both in terms of who it's focusing on, the span of time that it looks at, and the changes that people go through during that time. Very sensitive. Really continues to have that expert, graceful cinematography and camera blocking that we talked about in Jose Rizal. And yeah, I I feel a very strong click with it. Really enjoyed it. I'm so glad, and it's not a surprise. Because <laughs> it's just, I, I don't know, it's just a damn good movie. I feel like it's really hard yeah. to fault. Yeah. Yeah. Ben, yeah. Ben, I like Morale. I think, I mean, I love this kind of like sprawl type movies mm-hmm. where it uses yeah. different characters to explore kind of the same thing. And I think mm-hmm. Abai and her writer, Ricky Lee, are able to kind of use the four characters to explore really different versions of womanhood and like the kinds of trials that they go through in this time through the four characters because they all have very unique perspectives right or unique experiences i guess and Mm -hmm. even through like their relationships with their parents or kind of like creates an interesting juxtaposition as well as exploration of how the times have changed and how the times are changing Mm -hmm. within this period for these women i think about this and I wonder if it is a best friend cinema film. Totally. Oh, hundred percent. Right? No, but okay, yeah. I'm I'm in a weird place where like it looks on the surface like one of those best friend cinema films, but I think my main kind of thing that kind of stops me from loving as much as I wish I could have is that 
the moments in which the women come together feel a little slight in terms of the story or like in terms of the conflict that they try to explore. The women come together quite infrequently and I wish they would come together a bit more. But I think a lot of story sits within their individual journeys, within their individual lives rather than their lives together. And so yeah. I think the idea that they're best friends is a connective tissue between the four threads rather than the core focus, which is what I like about best friend cinema films, where mm-hmm. this kind of uses that more of a way of bringing them together to bring these stories together rather than just being four random women, right? That's kind of what I wish I got more from this, like a little bit more like frisson between the four characters, a little bit more electricity between them rather than just be- them being very different women who have slightly different perspectives. I think that would be more interesting. But they do come together to kind of support each other and to be there for each other, which is nice to see. But I guess I kind of want to see them fight a little bit more. (laughs) (laughs) That's maybe why I want it. But yeah, maybe that's not good, but okay. (laughs) I have some thoughts about the formal choices behind that level of separation or distance between them. But I'll hold Uh, on to that for a second because, Wilson, what do you think of the movie? How did you first come to it? Well, I first came to morale through Letterboxd. I think it <laughs> still stands as one of the most like highly rated women-directed films on Letterboxd. And hmm. I was like, oh my god, what is this Filipino film that's sitting at the top of this list? So I was in hotel quarantine last summer, and I just came back from like a really long trip outside of home. And I had these three days to like just sit in this room. And one of the films that I watched during that time was Morale. And hmm. I was immediately taken. Well, it was it was already my second Mary Lou Diaz a bio film that I saw. But I think I was just more drawn into these characters. I could really relate to them, even though I'm not a woman. I just felt like I understood the pain and suffering and triumphs and just living their lives. Lee's script sort of like touches on melodramatic moments, but I think it's interesting to think about which melodramatic buttons he decides to push and right. which ones he decides to just lay lay his finger on and maybe skirt around. And I think it's just a really expert script. I think the way that mm. it just jumps around from character to character and how we sort of don't really see them come together, but it's still the trajectory of the entire film still flows in such a beautiful way. I'm just thinking about that last act and how everything really crescendos in each of these women's lives sort of in tandem. I was reminded a lot of one of my other like really favorite movies of the past few years, Hamaguchi's Happy Hour. But I think this does it in a like within like two and a half hours whereas happy hour goes over three and i i, I like finished it and i was like holy shit like i can't believe that diazabaya and ricky lee like were able to pack so much in on such a i would say short runtime for the amount of story that this covers and mm-hmm. the amount of time and you really get to know these women and yeah i was just incredibly blown away by it and nothing really changed on a rewatch i was like maybe picking up on a couple more things but like i think i came away from it feeling as moved by it 
Very well said yes. about the script. Yeah. I'm going to quickly go through some context, maybe read and show or make us listen to um, a bit of Abaya's words on the film and what she thought about making it before diving in talking about like specific characters and specific scenes um, because that is sort of what I really, really want to talk about with this film. So morale is now considered one of the classics of Philippine cinema. Um, it was, as I said before, it was Abaya's fifth feature and this happened when she already had an established working relationship with Ricky Lee. And the film talks about the mostly separate and occasionally intersecting lives of four college friends at UP, the University of Philippines. We have Joey, who is sort of a slacker and is in love with this student activist named Jerry. We have Kathy, who is a wannabe singer. We have Sylvia, who is a single mom who is separated from her husband, who's studying to become a lawyer and teaching at the same time. And we also have Mary Tess, who we begin this film with her marriage to Dodo. And we sort of go through a few years in their lives. So this film takes place at the height of student activism right before the declaration of martial law in 1976. And very briefly, martial law was this period where the president, Ferdinand Marcos at the time, had a one-man rule of the Philippines that he declared until he was exiled from the country in 1986. He said he enacted this martial law because of this communist threat to his governments. However, this was later proved to be a way for Marcos to consolidate power and extend his tenure beyond the two presidential terms and hide secret stashes of unexplained wealth for him and his family. The time was known for their abuses of human rights, so campaigns targeting student activists, political activists, journalists, and some historians believe that Marcos, the dictatorship was marked by over 3,000 known extrajudicial killings, 35,000 documented tortures, and 77 disappeared people, and 70,000 incarcerations. My mom grew up at the time of martial law, and she mm. talked about um, having a curfew and having to be home at certain times. It was not an easy time for a lot of people in the mm. Philippines, and I think garnered a lot of hatred for that family that has somehow dissipated by now. I don't know how. I'm not going to explain how. Um, but yeah, it is a very dark time in Philippine history. And I think a time that directors like Abaya, like Ishmael Bernal and Lino Broca channeled in their work, even though they were not making stuff directly about martial law, a lot of the films that they were making at the time could be alluded to as reflections on martial law. Hmm. So this was a time of moral flux for the characters in the film. These women were all put in situations where old values and principles no longer apply. So it was sort of like this bursting moment right before things started getting like shut down and quelled. The film also marks one of the collaborations between Abaya and Phil Zabat, who is the production designer, and her husband, Manola Abaya, who shot and edited the film. Oh. Shot, produced, and edited the film. 
Um, This film initially did not have as warm of a reception as her first film in the AL series, I'll say, Brutal. It was generally ignored at the Metro Manila International Film Festival. She said that local audiences were not used to the roving plot structure of the film. She said, I'm going to quote this, Generally, the audience did not connect, but this was nothing I was not surprised at all. While making it, I was already feeling very anxious and uncomfortable about the fact that I thought this was too personal. I might be the only one to understand it. I was really hurt when I felt rejected, even if you anticipated that rejection. I think she was being very frank and very honest about this, but the film ended up being embraced overseas. It was the first of Abayo's works to attract foreign attention. And in 1984, it received the BFI Outstanding Film of the Year Award. So Abaya wrote a text in this book about comparing different views of Philippine cinema and her section was called Images of Women in Philippine Cinema and I want to just read this section of the book because I feel like it like even though she wrote this probably like 10 years after she made Morale I think the sentiment still applies there and this section is called it's just the start of this section of the text it's a really interesting read and she goes over I guess classical representations of Filipinas in cinema which is Filipina woman and more nuanced takes and she gives very clear examples and if you are looking to dive into Philippine cinema I really recommend it and you can just find me on discord and I'll send you a link to it this section is called between two worlds and playing dual roles mother Mary and Mary Magdalene It is said that the modern Filipino woman spent her first 400 years in history locked up inside a Spanish convent, then her next 40 years mimicking the stars of Hollywood movies, only to end up today as a chambermaid in London. Along the way, she accumulated a motley collection of educational certificates, catechism under the Spanish fires, 1521 to 1898, English under the American Thomasites, 1900 to 1945, Social Graces under Imelda Marcos, 1969 to 1986, Mm. French and Mathematics under Corazon Aquino, 1986 to 1991, International Relations under the present government, with the option to enroll in the Mail Order Bride Program currently in progress. To sum up her colonial history, the Filipina has swung back and forth between two values, religious spirituality from her Spanish experience and democracy and material prosperity from her American teachers. The result is a psychological dilemma which she continually grapples with but never quite manages to express, much less to resolve. Historically relegated to the management of family and home, she does not have the political experience to set herself free. She resorts mainly to cultural maneuverings to get what she needs without compromising her privileged social status as a sanctified Madonna. Despite such confusing and often contradictory experiences, the Filipina seems to be sure about what she wants, and that is to have everything. Love, marriage, children, home, career, prosperity, happiness, and peace of mind, preferably in that order. Never mind that her life is an obstacle course of poverty, prejudice, and limited opportunities, because from childhood she has been bred by her mother to surmount these disadvantages and is therefore equipped not only to survive, but more importantly, to prevail. 
with such a colorful character, the Filipina should have shown great potential as a dynamic subject for film stories. And yet, only the sketchiest portraits have been created of her. Wow. I mean, yeah. until morale, right? Like... Yes, maybe a bit before morale, but she does right. talk Not about... Until... Yes, yes. But I think she is... She definitely has something to say. And I think she uses her film to say some of that. Mm. Uh, yeah. I have an interview, another interview. It's only okay, two minutes. <laughs> I'm going to play it for you guys. So in 1983, which is much closer to the release of Morale, um, Tony Rayans, who's this incredible Asian film scholar, went to the Philippines with Channel 4 and made this documentary about Filipino directors at the time. Also, if you're interested in Filipino cinema, you should check the whole thing out because he interviews Braca, he interviews Bernal, and he interviews... Abaya. Um, and this is just Abaya talking specifically about morale. Marilu Diaz Abaya studied film in Los Angeles and London and began directing in 1979. Her second film, Brutal, was an angry study of the sufferings of a Filipino wife. The majority of Filipino women are disposed to accept, to accept personal and social injustices. They're predisposed to being, if you like, martyrs. And largely, I am concerned about this attitude. Her fifth film, Morale, took these concerns further. It centers on four women friends and compares their experiences of men, marriage, and work. At first, I wanted to do a film about female friendship, how and why they bond how they react to each other, what is female friendship like as compared to male friendship, and in what context do we see female friendship. We went further by discussing not only female friendship, but the social context in which we can find it, such as the Filipino family, the institutions surrounding it, such as the educational institutions and the church institutions, and, and so on. And we came up with moral largely today uh, it's perfectly all right for the filipino woman to hold government offices or to be the president of banks and very big corporations but you see with the provision that they do not neglect family husband children and so forth and so on and i feel that perhaps this in itself this expectation may not be necessarily fair that women ought to have the the, the real option whether they want to be a full-time housewife a full-time career woman or both. This is her talking about the movie, and I think I'm going to end this context, and I think I like provide a really good backdrop for a conversation about the film. Yeah, that's a pretty incredible backdrop. Thank you for compiling that. It's interesting how like this period of Filipino filmmaking is so political, and I think so many of the kind of more established or renowned filmmakers from that time, including Abai herself, are so political. And maybe yeah. it is just a, a function of being raised and like growing up in that time of Marcos or whatever. And like being also part of a nation that has gone through so many hands and mm -hmm. like different kinds of power. And I think that's so interesting. And I love that about how like so many filmmakers are so politically inclined and like so engaged politically with their films and like what they want to say. Yeah. Yeah, it's really cool. But it was, I think it's also like just out of necessity as well, like we yeah. talked about in the previous episode. It was like that period of time. I don't know. I, I'm like not sure how, I, th I guess the 
like censorship was quite lax because they were able to make films like this still mm. under dictatorship. So I think they were just using any means possible to protest. It's also interesting because there aren't a ton of consolidated film movements that are defined more by the political content than by the stylistic mm. hallmarks. Yeah, you're yes. right. And I guess similarly, those more politically defined than stylistically defined movements come out of things like, you know, it's very stifled, but like Spanish film under Franco or kind of a different political situation, but like early Soviet cinema or mm-hmm. kind of later general Eastern Bloc cinema. Yeah. Those cinemas were government mandated. Like you could think about like the right, that's early true, Chinese right? cinema as well. There were like what's like maybe even what's happening in India right now. This is like mm-hmm. government supported, but like sort of anti-government work is is interesting. It's It sort of feels like guerrilla warfare. Kind of. <laughs> but I would say that morale itself is pretty like light in its indictment of um, sure. whatever was going on politically, but I think more of a celebration of, of womanhood at the time and just these characters trying to break free of societal chains. Sure. Um, it indicts the martial law that is to follow the period of time that the movie focuses on by showing how full all these characters' lives are before that martial law is put into effect. Yeah, definitely. I think there's something to be said about the way that she challenges the woman's role in society and what being said at times also a little bit mirrored by the way that like power in general in society is controlled mm. within the political sphere. Like I think you can make a little bit of an argument about that. Like how if the home is controlled by the man in some sense, mm-hmm. then like the nation is controlled by certain leaders. Mm-hmm. And so there are certain kinds of freedoms and like certain kinds of expectations that you have within these two spheres and that she wants to challenge what those things can mean. I think you can draw a bit of a, an argument there about that comparison. And the fact that she is putting those two things in the same film makes you think of those things. And that there are different ways in which the characters negotiate that power within their own homes yeah. lays yeah. out a kind of metaphorical roadmap as well. Like, mm. to, like, really varying degrees. Yeah. Yes, totally. Maybe let's start at the very start, because right off the bat, to me, a movie that starts in the middle of a wedding procession <laughs> in media res is doing something right. It reminds yes. me of another great female Friends movie from a few years later, Mystic Pizza, by, mm. I think, Donald Petrie. Which, by the way, Ben, is a huge contender for Best Friend Cinema Canon, Mystic Pizza. But, oh, oh, wait, I feel like someone's recommended this to me before. It might have been me. <laughs> I think it was you. I think it was you. But it is such an interesting place to start. And in retrospect, it puts some of these things on the table immediately. Because yeah. it is obviously introducing us to our main characters, even though we maybe can't keep track of them all right off the bat. Mm-hmm. But yeah. it puts Marites first and foremost. She has the most open and closed examination and renegotiation of her marriage back towards the place that it starts in a way. Mm -hmm. But there's also another element which I want to put on our conversational table up top, which is that 
there are a number of scenes in this movie that very purposefully place an observer or observers of the main conversational action into the blocking very deliberately. So mm-hmm. later on, it's things like Sylvia's son. It's Marites observing Sylvia. It's Kathy observing Sylvia and Robert's conversation about their marriage. It's Marites hearing Mrs. Torres talk to Sylvia. But here in the opening scene, it's all these men and women of a more conservative slice of society, seemingly, remarking on the fact that Marites is entering this marriage pregnant. They're talking about mm-hmm. how long they think the marriage is going to last. Yeah. And in this opening scene, Diaz Abaya is privileging and drawing your attention to how other people look at the main characters. I'm not entirely sure what to make of that, but it feels very prominently placed. Yeah. What do you guys think? I really like that. Like, I think it sets up the film really nicely because obviously it starts off with the marriage scene and then you know nothing about it. Mm-hmm. It looks pretty generic or like feels pretty like, okay, it's just a marriage. Like, what's the mm. deal here? But then the moment she cuts to those shots of those random people. Yes. Actually just shots of them, right? And then they're just commenting and then they're making all these snark remarks. And you realize, oh, this yeah. film is about women being judged. Mm-hmm. And the different kinds of ways they're being judged about their marriage about how long their marriage is going to last about their weight about premarital sex about shotgun marriages like you know what i mean like immediately it tells you that this is going to be about women under scrutiny and i think that's a really strong opening for that like immediately undermines the wedding itself to show you that like it's not celebrating the wedding actually it even happens before they start making comments you can see it when dia zabaya cuts to the reaction shots in their eyes you can just see it's very expertly placed yep. shot choices yeah yeah totally but then this concept of the observer changes a little bit and i first started noticing it with sylvia's son who's present for some of the early hangout scenes amongst yeah. the girls <laughs> what a funny little child i know <laughs> I'm like, are you, you're not a child actor. You're just like, <laughs> just hang Some out. Just kid they threw on the set. <laughs> Little wise boy. I found myself thinking about how he'll grow up and the type of man he'll become having grown up around these women and their light friendship. And mm-hmm. that also feels kind of political too. Yeah. Like, it feels like the kind of young man who would be lost by a system like martial law where Mm -hmm. if you don't get to see people live up to the potential of what they want to be doing, then you don't know how to grant people that kind of happiness and liberty later on. It's not just talking about his mom, but also his dad and that really unique and beautiful like family structure that appears by the end or like is sort of constructed by the end of this film. It really creeps up on you and you like I was just really blown away by the fact like that Lee's script took turns that I didn't expect it to take or not even like I I didn't even think that they would have the I don't know like the compassion yeah like compassion for these characters in the fucking 80s like 
Yeah. Like, mm. it was yeah. just, yeah, I was really, I think that was one of the things that really stuck with me from my first watch and, like, was one of the reasons why this just immediately, like, blew me away because the uncovering of Sylvia's ex-husband cohabitating with his boyfriend or lover, Celso, and Sylvia's initial reaction of, like, disgust or or jealousy that turns into like a love for both of them and this real like crazy union is just yeah i think just outstanding i want to talk about that moment when it changes too because that was the first moment that really caught me and moved me in the movie when so sylvia has gone to confront salso and you sort of see it start to turn a little bit but then Diazabaya jumps ahead in time and yeah. you just get to see Sylvia, Celso, and Sylvia's son sitting at the table and Robert comes in to the frame and just sort of naturally sits down with the other three and they all start laughing together. And I mean, Sylvia's laughing from the start of the scene. Yeah, She's yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> and by the way, so many scenes start with people laughing at things that we aren't aware of yet, which I want to yeah. say something about in a moment. But with this scene... Diazabaya just chooses to hold the frame totally static and it just stays mm-hmm. on their performances uninterrupted. And the other thing that does to me is it's a little bit tension building where it's like, is this going to work? Are they really going to sit down and all get along together and continue to laugh? And and it works. And yeah. I feel such relief as that shot goes on and it continues to work. And I continue to feel that relief as the movie goes on and the relationship that they have as a family, remains untroubled and unquestioned. Yeah. It's really special. If I were to say which one of the four stories was the most interesting to me, I would definitely say it was Sylvia's. Like, I think it was re- mm-hmm. It was definitely the strongest of the th- four threads and the most fascinating and the most well-executed. Like, I think about how they revealed why she was separated in the first place. Yeah. Because at the first... I remember the first time we see her talking to her son in bed. I was like, oh, maybe the husband's dead because where is the the father and they don't tell you Same. what they're visiting right and i was like okay yes visit yes we'll visit him on right? wednesday yes yeah right. and i was like okay and then the reveal after where they meet the father to hang out i'm like wait he seemed pretty chill and they seem to be in love and like what is going on yeah <laughs> and you don't understand and i thought that teasing of information was so interesting and then when you finally reveal that oh, okay he disabled because he is not straight and then that becomes the kind of core reason and like the core conflict between the two and like how do we resolve this kind of story for Sylvia and I found that so interesting and of course like the things you've already talked about like the way that it resolves in a kind of compassionate way and like into a new family structure that is extremely unconventional for the time and even that is juxtaposed by the idea of the unusual family structures of like having multiple partners for men when mm-hmm. she is confronted yeah. by Mrs. Torres or fake Mrs. Torres, who right. is actually just the second partner of her new lover, Ernie, I think. Yes. And so I think that's really interesting, like, in that how it contemplates the different ways in which women float in and out of family units and how Sylvia finds herself and, like, finds something that works for her by the end of the film. Yeah. It's a really fascinating story and, like, premise for, for this film, I think. And I think definitely the strongest one because yes. of the layers and like the kind of complexities that it kind of tries to grapple with throughout her kind of arc. Yeah, of 
Horace. But not to discount the other three stories in the film yeah. as well. Right. Um, I sort of want to talk about Joey, who is yeah. my favorite. Well, not my favorite storyline, but my favorite girl out of the four of them. <laughs> She's Maybe also my favorite girl, actually. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like, from the first few scenes, I was like, okay, Joey's interesting. <laughs> yeah, like, you even see it from the wedding, where she enters, and everyone's like, who is that? Who is that? There's like, that's just Mary Tess's friend. <laughs> and she just, like, um, arrives late, like, pushes past people, like, sort of, like, cusses out the... Who was reading at the time? It was, like, Sylvia was reading. <laughs> she was just, like, oh, stupid, or whatever. <laughs> but I just love her character so much how little she gives a shit but i think when things get more serious and when she starts talking to her mom who had her when she was 15 about like raising her and i i think that one the one key scene there is that new year's scene where she's burning all these old things that she owns and her mom comes out and sort of tries to have this late connection with her but Joey doesn't want to have it at the time. It's sort of really heartbreaking, but I think how that relationship develops is is also like one of that one of the most like interesting parts of the film, as well as Joey's obsession with Jerry, who like she wouldn't like give two shits about student activism or striking uh, if it wasn't for her obsession with this man. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, But I think how that progresses and Jerry's marriage to Nita and that further part when, when Nita comes to live with Joey and how that ends with Jerry passing away and, Joey finally coming to terms with Nita. Nita doesn't have to come to terms with, with Joey at all. But yeah, also another character arc that is so filled with compassion. And I'm just like, yes, these characters are just like taking the right steps and making the right decisions. And it just really rarely happens in melodramatic cinema. I wouldn't even call Maybe mm-hmm. this is not melodramatic cinema. This is definitely more I don't think so, actually. Than, yeah. Yeah. Like, but... It really warms my heart, even though, like, I guess it is quite a harrowing aspect of this whole film. Joey is the character who probably goes through the greatest change in personality as brought on by her miscarriage discovery of a congenital disorder that prevents her from having children and that New Year's conversation with her mother. And to zoom in on that conversation, that's one of the more subtle relationship shifts in the movie right where beforehand joey is coming to her mother maggie kind of from a place of craving some kind of connection or approval right she's going but also holding her at a arm's length because she's been taught to i think she needs that kind of space to grow but she's also craving something that she didn't get as a kid from her mom And, you know, she's having kind of semi-inappropriate conversations with her mom about her mom's dating life and her partner's underwear. But then through that conversation (laughs) at the fire, a line that sticks out to me is she tells her mom to step back and not get burned by the fire as her mom is kind of opening up. And I think that line unlocks something for me because 
ultimately the conversation gives Joey some kind of closure. And though she doesn't Mm -hmm. really reconnect with her mom in the end, the relationship seems to be in a healthier place or in a place where Joey needs it to be, at least in this point in time. Mm -hmm. And she's not doing something like going and seeking approval. She's not going out and getting high again. She has more control over what she wants to do. And her love for Joey persists, but it doesn't get in the way of her opening up and showing care for Nita as well which is an extreme act of generosity. Yeah. I just keep on thinking about that scene where Nita leaves and mm. she yeah. like, tells her that he's dead. And Diaz Abaya does this like long take thing again. She keeps on doing it throughout this film where she just stays and doesn't cut that often for yeah. like crucial moments and crucial scenes. And it's such a like yeah, good good choice, very subtle choice, very mm-hmm. easy to do when you have trust in your performers and you're Mm. all on the same wavelength. And when the dialogue isn't overdoing it, Ricky Lee really, I mean, I know that, you know, there's a stylistic calling sometimes for a dialogue that is very big and over the top, but sometimes it's too much. And this is never that like the dialogue really feels like it's not overstating things. And it's very, Mm -hmm it gives you room to kind of work your way in and interpret. And it really gives the actors a lot of leeway to do a lot as well. I think Joey's like construction as a character is interesting because her kind of upbringing, the reason she exists is also from a woman who is also kind of figuring things out when she was younger. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. And so like in a way, Joey mirrors her mother, but like with a very, very different experience, but I think with a very similar type of personality and so like seeing maggie try to advise her daughter but knowing that she herself is somebody who struggles similarly probably is such a fascinating thing to watch and you see how maggie is such a soft touch like she doesn't want to push too hard because she knows she cannot push too hard Mm, right and like she's already kind of like this mother who's like not a typical style of mother that you would see in this kind of relationship i feel like in this kind of story already and mm-hmm. I think Joey's story is interesting because in a way she represents a very, very modern style of woman, right? Mm-hmm. Right. She sleeps around a lot. She doesn't care. She wants to work. She doesn't care what people think of her. And that's supposed to usually be a good thing when you have like a feminist leaning story, right? But for her, she still struggles a lot. And she maybe struggles the most out of all the characters yeah. in trying to find herself like in being modern she struggles a lot in trying to find her identity as a person and like what she wants to do and i think the script is sensitive in how it approaches that mm-hmm. without necessarily like condemning anything and like it kind of presents her journey in a very compassionate way as we've been saying right and allows yeah. her to kind of grow in that journey and i really like that and i think like the choice to have Joey, who has struggled so much against the system mm. throughout the film, have her leave the country at the end of the film. I think Lee is trying to say something about, mm. like, they just can't survive in this country. Right. It's mm. just not possible. And that's... Mm. The film ends on a very, like, high note, but I think that is, like, the sort of the clincher at the end where you're left to think about that. I like how the ending car shot mirrors the other shot when uh, Mary Tess goes into labor. Oh, yeah. 
Oh, can yeah, we talk about I, that whole sequence? Because, oh my God. When she goes into labor? <laughs> I know we compared Diaz de Blaya to Spielberg in our last conversation about Jose Rizal. Yes. But I thought of him again here because the shot starts off on Joey taking a photo with Nita and Jerry at the graduation and then tracks with her to the left as she goes and takes a photo with the four women. And then Marita starts to go into labor and the camera kind of tracks and tilts down with Marita as she sits. And it just felt like beginning, middle and end. This Mm. is the sort of tracking shot that Spielberg also does that has a little mini narrative to it. And it's so Mm -hmm. compelling to watch. It feels very natural. It just makes sense. And it's very graceful as well. Mm. Yeah. Clean directing. Such clean direction. My goodness. Ben, what Uh, do you make of that link between the two car shots? I mean, the one thing that's different is that Dodo's not there. (laughs) Plus, he's in the first one. I don't know. Like, I think there was something about, like, those are moments of togetherness that are very specific. And obviously, a birth is, like, a big thing that happens, right? Mm. And I guess a person leaving is also a big moment for Mm. the friend group. Mm. And so, I think... Like, the shot itself is already such a pleasant shot because you get to see the women, like, hanging out. And you can see all their faces in the same shot Mm. the whole time in all the shots for both shots. So, I think... Sort of like that Pony and Selvan 2 shot. (laughs) Oh. The the three shot? (laughs) The three shot. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, mean, there's a four shot. (laughs) But I think it's just a nice kind of punctuation because it's... In calling back that shot, it reminds you of the kind of things that they've gone through throughout the movie. I think that's maybe yep. what it achieves. Yeah, and the script doesn't really like lay out for you, oh, how long has passed? Like if you yeah. sort of try to track the bit of the film where we follow Kathy and her music career, it sort of yeah. jumps ahead quite fast yes. without us realizing how long has... <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think the script and the editing are really good at yes. jumping through time. Like, yes. even though it's a little discombobulating, but it, it feels natural and you catch up really quickly and then you understand what is going on and like, yeah. oh, okay, we're a year now. Like, another two years have happened. Yeah, you quite know? effortless. And so, yeah, very effortless. And I think that comes down to the way that the scenes are laid out and, of course, even the intercutting between the four stories. Like, you never feel imbalanced by the pacing and the way that events unfold and mm-hmm. the way that time unfolds in this. So I think that's really quite successful. And the performances, the change in performances marks change as well. Joey in mm. particular, also Kathy, the disappointment that grows in her. Quite heartbreaking to see. It is, yeah, yeah. If we are going through character by character, sure, hers is probably my least favorite of the four arcs. I guess I agree. Yes. Yeah. yes. <laughs> Me too. But Gina but still stuff is there really and good. She... Yeah. Yeah, she is. And the choices that she makes to leave the music industry is interesting. And the active choice to have a smaller life and focus on the quality of the art is noble and nice. Yeah. But I feel like, yeah, you can tell that Lee and Diaz Abaya sort of spend less time with Kathy yeah. and they sort of put her story towards the second half like or I guess the start of the second half of the yeah. film and I think it's just really expert like scene to scene jumping and I talked about this earlier 
but when things start to like happen in all these storylines together like i'm thinking about even early on the cutting between the two sex scenes the mary tess and dodo one which is aggressive and looks like there's sort of a power imbalance between the two not the not the rape scene that happens later on but the the sex Mm -hmm. scene that happens earlier but that's cut to the sex scene between robert and celso which is really loving the ability to sort of take these storylines off in at, at a similar time and hit these like really poignant moments and your ability to draw connections between these different storylines even though they're not really affecting each other adds to this compounding effect which feels like such a tightrope walk in the script writing and the editing process as well yeah and in addition to cross-cutting to make that kind of meaning there's also a number of moments that have a time jump and use that gap to make a very specific feeling I'm thinking of two moments in particular that create the feeling of alienation through the juxtaposition of a very emotionally down moment with an emotionally high moment. Mm. So first there's Joey being informed of the condition of her uterus cutting to the New Year's party. And at first I was like, whoa, this is a very jarring cut. But Diazabaya does that very purposefully to funnel back to Joey, burning her belongings. And you feel that she's totally apart from the celebratory nature of the holiday. Similarly, later on, after the scene where Eduardo rapes Marites, it cuts to one of those Sunday night family dinners of Eduardo's family Mm. as they're wishing Eduardo's grandfather, I believe, a happy birthday. And it's yeah. a very jarring cut. And yeah. once again, Diazabaya is doing that purposely to tee up later in that scene as Marites finally leaves Eduardo. Yeah. And I love how it's just a, such a silent leaving. Like nothing yeah. big right. happens there. She just starts walking. But you're immediately on Marites's emotional page yeah. because you have been so jarred by the cut that enters the scene. Yeah. Because you are in her headspace in the previous scene and then you enter the next scene in her same headspace, right? Yes, yeah. And so even though it's a happy scene with the party and stuff, you are thinking of it through the lens of I've just been assaulted, right? And so like that's that's pretty crazy. Actually, that's really, that's a very good point. Yeah, it's a very strong cut. You were talking about sex scenes, Wilson, and I mean, not that, I don't really want to talk about this immediate one right now, but I think when I look at this film, it being like this sprawling, multi-threaded thing, there's a lot of sex scenes. Yeah. And like, I feel like the way I think about this movie is in a very, almost like a map of mm. many, many things happening. But I think the fact that there's so many sex scenes and so many different kinds of sex scenes in different contexts, with different people, that it's a very interesting slice of women's sexuality within this time. And like mm. the reasons that you have sex, like the context that you have sex, the ways that it can be good, the ways that it can be terrible. Like, I think that just as an idea, like the idea to do that many sex scenes in so many different contexts is such a strong component of the script. Like you think Mm -hmm. about like Sylvia's, her having sex with Ernie, being like this kind of like, her kind of like figuring out being single again. Mm -hmm. And then you look at the way that Joey is just having more casual sex. Mm. 
and then Kathy's kind of more transactional sexual wow. relationships. Like I think that's really interesting, and like I think the way they use those scenes, and the way that after watching the movie, you can kind of like start comparing them in your head, and I think that helps capture the idea and like helps her kind of present what she's trying to present about womanhood and like about the different ways in which they interact with, with people with insects and also outside of it. Totally. Yeah. 100%. Of the trajectories of the main character, I mentioned a little bit that Marites sort of circles back to where she started, but that's both true and not, right? Like she mm-hmm. reconciles with Eduardo, but she as you said, Wilson winds up standing up for herself and she does now have three children, which is perhaps a greater change and a greater change in personality than I had accounted for at the start of our conversation. Mm. It's Mm -hmm. of the forming characters who connect to each other the most. Mari Tess is definitely the character who goes between the other women the most. And to see the type of support that she gets from the other women is very instructive and elucidating thematically like mm-hmm. it it kind of captures the benefit and necessity of that type of friendship very yeah. clearly to mm-hmm. see how sylvia for example talks to eduardo after marites oh, great left scene him. great yeah. scene yeah yeah i think that marites and sylvia is a really strong like bond that we see yeah. in this film and then i think the threads that also like sort of for housing reasons joey is <laughs> threaded with all the other women because right. <laughs> she needs a place to stay um, so i think these are like subtle ways for us to get more than one of the women in 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 a scene together yeah. but that scene after marites gives birth the first time where she's talking about Dodo wanting another child and they're sitting mm. in Sylvia's house and she's talking about how how she feels like she's been turned into a machine and yeah. feels like she's being used and abused really like struck a chord I think there and it's like Eli said it's not quite it, I guess right now the way that I'm saying it sort sounds sort of preachy but in the moment of the scene it feels very genuine like even that conversation that sylvia has with the headmistress at the school that she works at and oh that's very subtle yeah. that's not even like a <laughs> that's like a, a great whole scene. <laughs> it's not even like a whole story thread it's just one scene where she gets called into the office because she's i guess other teachers have been reporting her as not wearing a bra to work <laughs> she sort of like stands up for herself and then like like resigns by taking her bra off and like putting it on her on the headmistress's desk and that that like I think these very clear examples of like feminist actions taken by these women in their own mm-hmm. lives just to stand up for themselves feels natural and genuine. I think Mary Tess is a necessary character. Like I would say that in a sense her storyline feels a little bit familiar. Mm-hmm. But I think she's necessary to be like a backbone of a somewhat more conventional story, right? Like mm-hmm. of a woman stuck in a domestic situation that yeah. feels very familiar. But I think mm-hmm. you need that to kind of contrast the others who are in less familiar situations, mm-hmm. right? And then the way that they kind of like help Mary Tess within this kind of more familiar type of story, I think makes it work for me. 
even like if I would watch that on its own, I would think it would be less interesting. But because she's there alongside the other three threads, and I think it helps to inform each other. Yeah. And works they really inform as a whole. each and other. I, yeah. Totally. Yeah. It's really a film you yeah. gotta take as a whole. Like you can't really yeah. pick and choose each thread. Like they all kind right. of help you understand the entire kind of message of the movie. Yeah. Or not even message. It's like a message, but more of like encompassing more of like mm-hmm. a, a perspective maybe more of a yes. perspective yeah. of the film yeah well i think this gets back to what you said at the top and about wanting to see all four women in the same place more yeah. frequently than we do the first scene where i thought about what diaz abaya might be trying to do by withholding that kind of scene is pretty early on in the movie when the women are still at college together we cut into a scene And the women are laughing about something and really like having a good time being together. And they're kind of walking down the hall. They're walking up the stairs. Joey has to sit down because she's laughing so hard. (laughs) And this whole time, we don't know what they're laughing about. We never learn. (laughs) And that withholding of information about why are they friends in the first place? What are they Mm. laughing about? What do they come together over? There's a certain privacy given to them about that that I yeah, think true. feels part of this thread. Yeah. You find out pretty late how they become friends. Yeah, it was like Maggie's boyfriend asking them on a night out. Uh, or not, who is, uh, like, I think Kathy's performing. And he asked the and girls. it's like, oh, they met in a remedial group in school. And then they became friends. And I was like, oh, this is the first time I know about this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I didn't realize I didn't know until that point. Yeah. I guess the other part of the scene was Kathy, like, ditching her lesbian manager for Mr. Suarez. Oh. Mm. After that performance, yeah. And even Kathy, like, who I feel like is the weakest of the storylines, I feel like added some levity to the film. I love, I like that hilarious scene where she's giving that interview to the journalist where she is talking about her religion and then she's like, oh yeah, God comes in in many forms. And then she's like, I know about JC. Like, uh, she's, and the guy is like, what, who's JC? And she's like, Jesus Christ. (laughs) I was very confused about what was going on at Siege. I wasn't sure it was her at first. (laughs) I was very confused. The Kathy scene that I think I like the most is when she goes to Sylvia and is like, look, you're the most honest. Can I oh, make yeah. it as a good singer? Yeah. Can I be a good yeah. singer? And yeah. Sylvia tells her That's no. It's, <laughs> and it winds up being what Kathy is looking for and kind of mm-hmm. wants to hear at that point so that she can be clear-eyed and make a decision that really benefits her. And that similarly to other scenes feels like a pretty subtle and down to earth portrayal of that kind of conversation in a surprising and refreshing way. Yeah. This is happening within that third act where everything is happening. Like you have (laughs) like, like Nita telling Joey that Jerry's dead and she has to go. And then you cut to that incredible scene of Sylvia putting on the record player and like dancing with oh her, her two guys. And I'm like, that is living. like Itumama Tambien. Oh, yeah. Design for Living. And Itumama Tambien. Yeah, yeah. Like, you are like, I, yeah, that's like fucking iconic. And I just, the, 
that third act where everything just comes together it just feels like it feels yangian in a way mm. like it, like mm. everything's this web of life that is yeah. maybe things are not connecting but things are happening concurrently in these women's lives that are all like clicking all these like story beats and character beats are happening at the same time and i'm like i'm transcending this is fucking incredible <laughs> I mean, wh- one of the strengths of what a movie can do is really consolidate on one person's perspective, right? But in this kind of broader narrative range where you get to see multiple perspectives, if they're all painted compellingly, to Ben's point, you see something broader than just perspective. Like, you you get a broader experience and map of feeling i i mm. don't i'm not so hard to describe right yeah because it's mm. just so much but also just yes it can be like one big thing at the same time but uh, yeah oh yeah it, it's yeah. a special it's, movie yeah. and you're right to I'm, name yee yee along with it I, yeah i think, I think about so. yee yee i think about our little sister I do think mm-hmm. about Mystic Pizza, which you both should watch. I think about like Altman films as well. Like, yes, I think like in terms of the web of life and like how it crescendos at the end there. Mm. Uh, a little smaller web of life, but definitely still, I think, a web of life type of film. Yeah, uh, and everyone knows definitely. of each other. Yeah, I mean, I'm convinced. I, I just put this on my best friend cinema canon list. Yeah, sweet. <laughs> yeah, goal of the episode accomplished. <laughs> yeah, that was a hidden arc in this episode. <laughs> wow, look at us intersecting lives. Well planned. <laughs> we really talked around this movie. I'm so glad that. Yeah, that was good. You guys were so warm on this, and yeah, I think I don't know this decision to bring Dia Zabaya on the pod was mostly due to the fact that I wanted you guys to watch this particular movie. So, <laughs> oh, just this one, okay. Not just this one, but I I think as an introduction to Philippine cinema on the pod, I think why not pull a sort of deep cut director out first and sort of show you guys a taster of her cinema and if you are interested then you can explore it more and uh, she has a lot more films she has films co- like written by Ricky Lee as well like a lot more of those as well so venture down that path if you want to they're great movies and i think the Spielberg comparison rings quite true because the types of movies that she makes subject matter wise and tonally don't don't really occupy the same space all the time like even if you think about this and jose rizal they are wildly different movies um but i think the connecting thread is this really strong direction and this really strong vision that she has um yeah so thank you for coming along this journey boys yeah. Really, thank you Thanks for, for introducing, introducing us, Wilson. I would have never known about her otherwise because I feel like she's really underrated and really under-talked about, like, in general, like, film spheres, yeah. even international ones. Yeah. yeah. Hey, Wilson, I have a question for you. When I was watching Morale, I thought several times, oh, I want to show this movie to my mom. Did you 
talk about this movie at all with your mom? You mentioned she's watched she... it. She's watched it. I don't mm. think she's that hot on it. I think she found it a little boring, honestly. <laughs> but I feel like we <laughs> we come together on a few films, but I do think that they are more popular cinema. Yeah, I, I'm treading carefully because I feel like she might listen to this episode. <laughs> <laughs> But she was Why don't not you like that this hot. mom. <laughs> and I tried mom. I tried to be like, oh, it's so good. The performances are so great and the storyline's so good. But I think she was like, yes, maybe similar to the, the Philippine public or at the time. <laughs> but I get it. I, I get why like this is less it's it's definitely less mainstream. Like you don't have yes. that kind of strong central plot that will help you kind of just like watch this easy with like a bunch of popcorn it's not that kind of movie and no it makes sense not. that it needed to make more inroads in like festivals overseas in a more like a art film kind of market i think and i think yeah. it makes sense that it kind of has this resurgence on the more letterboxed era yes definitely in, in like more recent years definitely yeah. and eli yeah. you were talking about like oh how so many of the filmmakers of the time were making such like politically motivated f- films but like i think those now proclaimed filmmakers were the ones that were more indie and like doing things on their own and then the mm. ones that were making popular cinema were still making popular cinema so but just goes to show that like, good cinema prevails through time yeah. mm-hmm. maybe it's just mm-hmm. the fact that like the political and more like exciting stuff is the stuff that travels because like festivals look for that huh. like mainstream local cinema tends to stay within the country and does not travel Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, I, I see that in Singapore as well. Like, and I, th- I think Hong Kong as well. Like, even mainstream yeah. Hong Kong films will not travel as much. But then, like, like we were talking about on the Discord, or like, I think I can't remember which chat, but like, even Wong Kar Wai might not even be that well received yeah. by local Hong Kongers and mainstream audiences in Hong Kong. Movie released a podcast episode about Chungking Express where someone declared Fei Wong's Cranberries cover as the national anthem of Hong Kong, speaking for this entire city. And (laughs) I think from that came a lot of, I guess, film people, but also a lot of Hong Kong people coming to arms and being like, this does not represent us. And like, Wong Kar Wai does not represent us. Like, honestly, like some people were like, honestly, Wong Kar Wai is not even that fucking popular in Hong Kong, which is true. <laughs> like, I said, like, I feel like I said that in my 2046 episode. Like, Wong mm. doesn't make movies for Hong Kongers. He, he like, makes yeah. movies for himself and makes movies for Western audiences. I'm not at Western audiences, but like himself. But, <laughs> but I yeah. would say he does have like a, a vibe that I think is trying to appeal to a more international audience rather than a local audience. Yes. The difference here is, of course, that Diaz Abaya is making a film for Filipinos. Well, yeah, but I, sure. like, I, like I she said in that you... quote, she she anticipated that reception for yeah. the film. Mm. But she's also one of those directors that can juggle both the popular yeah. and also the... What the fuck do you call it? Deep mm-hmm. cut. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank you again, yeah. Wilson. No problem, guys. Just... Everyone fucking go watch this movie. I, I say this so many... I've said this so many times in the span of this... T- when we've been doing this podcast. But one... This is like a... Wilson, go fucking watch this movie. Recommend. Go fucking watch this movie. It is... Available without English subtitles on YouTube. Officially. <laughs> like, it is officially available. If you can acquire subs somehow. Or if you can teach yourself Tagalog. 
<laughs> go ahead. If you don't want to, find me on Discord. <laughs> G- you know, most people G- only listen G-F-W-T-M. to episodes after watching. The yes. They're not going to hear your plea. <laughs> <laughs> At the end of an hour long, an hour and 15 yeah. minute long episode. I should put Spoiler it, I should fill. always do my like... Go At fucking watch this movie yeah. at the start of the episode. G- yeah. Initial reaction. GFWTM. Fu- What's GFWTM? Go fucking oh, watch this Oh, I get it. GFWTM. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this episode of Deep Cut. Please rate and review because that helps us keep making the show. Be sure to subscribe to us where you listen to podcasts so you'll know when our next episode drops. Keep up with Deep Cut on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and Letterboxd at Deep Cut Pod. Join us to talk about movies on our Discord server, to which you'll find a link in the description. Deep Cut is produced, edited, and hosted by us, Wilson, Bent, and Eli. Our artwork is made by Justina Yam. Our theme music is composed and performed by Eli Sands. I'm Wilson. I'm Ben. I'm Eli. Take care, and we're looking forward to talking about more movies with you next time. Uh